the Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guest Jason Chan, a round of creative team building, and then, spoiler warning, Jared shows how Clifford the Big Red Dog is clearly part of the Matrix universe. This changes everything. But first, your host, Jared Correa. That's right, y'all. It's time for the Legal Toolkit Podcast. And yes, it's still called Legal Toolkit, despite the fact that my wife still won't let me get a chainsaw. I'm your host, Jared Correa. Arsenio Hall was unavailable, and I wonder what Arsenio is doing right now. Probably eating some good-ass cheese at a wine and cheese party. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys and bar associations. Find us online at redcavelegal.com. I'm the COO of Gideon Software, Inc. We build chatbots so law firms can convert more leads and conversational document assembly tools so law firms can build documents faster and more accurately. You can find out more about Gideon at gideonlegal.com. Now, before we get to our interview today with Jason Chan from the law office of Jason Chan about online networking, I wanted to take a moment to talk about my favorite band. So I was talking with Legal Toolkit producer Evan DeSherry recently, after we recorded the last show about these monologues, and he suggested I try to hit some current topics. Clearly, I took offense to that. But then the very next weekend, I watched the Beatles Get Back documentary on Disney+, and I ran into movie theater, which is a surprisingly amazing deal these days. So my son and his friends could watch Ghostbusters Afterlife, which starred geriatric Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. And I realized that the past is the present. So I wanted to talk to you about that Beatles documentary, which is just staggering, by the way even though the footage was recorded well over 50 years ago. Get Back is a new spin on the Get Back recording sessions, featuring more footage of the building of what would become the album Let It Be. Rather than writing songs separately, as the Beatles have been doing more and more often after they stopped touring, they decided to come together in the studio to write an album that would culminate in a television special, which eventually morphed into a live concert, the rooftop concert you probably seen or heard about. Let It Be has a bad reputation. It's known as the Beatles' breakup album. It was, in fact, released about a week after their breakup. Critics didn't like it. And the accompanying documentary film that was released was kind of depressing, frankly. There was this all-around bad vibe, and it was painful in the way that ripping off a Band-Aid from a hairy arm would be painful. Hypothetically, I guess I wouldn't know, of course. It's kind of like a 10-minute version of All Too Well, but instead of slamming Jake Gyllenhaal, the vitriol is aimed at the band members themselves. Though their girlfriends and wives, including Yoko Ono especially and Linda McCartney also, came in for some criticism also, as everybody tried to figure out who broke up the Beatles, the greatest band of all time. Yeah, that's right. The Beatles are the greatest band of all time. I can be pretty contrarian at times, but I won't even debate that. The Beatles are also my favorite band of all time, as it turns out. How could they not be? I mean, let's face it. If your favorite band is a band that came before the Beatles, the Beatles are better than that band. And if your favorite band is a band that came after the Beatles, the Beatles heavily influenced them. And that's pretty much the whole story. 
Now, I always liked Let It Be. I thought it was a really good album, despite the reputation it had. I always felt like it was the most fun album the Beatles ever put out, and the songs are awesome. Get Back and Let It Be are some of the top entries in Paul McCartney's preposterous list of absolutely magnificent compositions. One After 909 and I've Got a Feeling are these jaunty rock songs that don't take themselves too seriously. They could have been used to whip up the crowd at the Cavern Club back in the day. And One After 909, which is a Lennon song, and Two of Us, which is a McCartney song, were early songs they resurrected for Let It Be to do the time constraints. And it shows. I mean, these songs are full of youthful exuberance, which you couldn't necessarily say about other Beatles compositions of the time period. Uh, not to mention George coming off the top rope with I, Me, Mine, and For You, Blue, the latter of which features John Lennon on a fucking slide guitar. Yes, that's right. Hell, Ringo even gets into the act. My guy Ringo composing Octopus's Garden, which would appear on Abbey Road, the Beatles' last recorded album and penultimate album release. What was cool about the Get Back documentary was that it was largely confirming what I had always felt about Let It Be. That it was a fun album because the band was back in studio together and was really having lots of fun making it. Now, the documentary is eight hours long, but it flies by. Yeah, I know that sounds really weird to say. And it is remarkable, honestly. Peter Jackson, who directed the Lord of the Rings movies, and his team have cleaned up the audio and video. So it looks and sounds like the sessions were recorded yesterday. It's like totally pristine. Honestly, I could have watched 100 hours of this. As it was, I watched the entire eight-hour documentary in a weekend. Yeah, I know, I need a hobby. What was really interesting, though, about watching Get Back was not only seeing the Beatles interacting on this intimate level, but also watching their process for creating songs. I always get the sense that they just did a couple takes, said next song, and moved along. Given their ridiculous output, that was the only thing that seemed to make any sense. But the number of iterations and versions they run through is truly impressive. McCartney is clearly a perfectionist, and he's the most workmanlike one in the entire group. He's just relentless in ordering new takes to get it right. In fact, the film ends with Paul asking for another take as the rest of the band is killing over in exhaustion. At one point, John Lennon is actually lying down playing his guitar because he's so tired. The song craft here is pretty painstaking, but the results are great. Watching Paul McCartney drive through these songs is pretty terrific. He treats the whole thing like going into the office and clocking in while making it sound like that's not how it happened at all. It really is amazing. And probably the best scene of the whole documentary is when he's sitting there strumming his guitar randomly while Ringo and George are falling asleep and he just comes up with the genesis of Get Back and Out of Thin Air. Just tossing off Get Back. He also apparently invented parkour because every time something goes wrong in studio, he starts climbing the scaffolding or jumping around on the roof. I've always kind of gone back and forth between George Harrison and Paul McCartney being my favorite Beatles, and I think I'm a Paul convert now. He just does everything right. And if anybody in the group is a genius, honestly, it's him. He's just sitting there at the piano coming up with these beautiful melodies out of the ether, and he's working out the lyrics with his best buddies. Sounds like a fun gig. So I watched part of the documentary with my kids. They really like the rooftop concert footage. And my daughter, who's six started spontaneously singing along to Dig a Pony, one of the most underrated John Lennon songs by about a mile, by the way. I don't think I've ever heard a six-year-old sing the lyric, you can syndicate every boat you wrote before. And honestly, she probably has better understanding of the meaning than I do. My son was 
absolutely apoplectic that Don't Let Me Down was not included on the album, by the way. And it's true, the Beatles just tossed off iconic non-album tracks all the time, like it was nothing, including also Hey Jude, Paperback Writer, and We Can Work It Out. It's like they invented Spotify while simultaneously releasing some of the best albums of all time. For real though, Don't Let Me Down should have been on the album. Phil Spector, yes, the murderer, fucked that one up when John Lennon and Paul McCartney asked him to finalize the Let It Be album. So if you listen to Paul's re-release called Let It Be Naked, which came out in 2003, Don't Let Me Down is included on that one. There are a couple other tracks that get dropped, and he rearranges the order of the other track. That's an interesting listen. Plus, my son continues to insist that he doesn't like Hey Jude, even though he listened to the first part of the song and the na-na part of the song during the documentary and indicated that both of those were good songs. So there's that. But the one big question hanging over these recording sessions has always been, who broke up the Beatles? And canonically, it was always Paul or Yoko. Yoko Ono, who's Lennon's girlfriend at the time, got the most flack, probably. But it's clear from watching Get Back that Yoko didn't break up the Beatles. I mean, she was perfectly sweet. Most of the time, she just sat there silently listening. And she doesn't say anything inflammatory when she does say something. Occasionally, she screams into the microphone, but that's about it. At one point, Heather McCartney, who's Paul's adopted daughter, she's about seven years old at the time, is in the studio, and she just starts randomly screaming into the mic, and everybody's like, Yoko! That was a really funny scene. But there's no animosity. So Yoko didn't break up the Beatles, and it's largely always been a misogynistic take that she did. At one point, Paul even says, 50 years from now, people are going to say Yoko broke up the Beatles because she sat on an amp in a mocking tone. That was actually pretty prescient. Paul didn't break up the Beatles either, though even though he was the one who sued to get the partnership broken up after everybody left the group, and he was the first one to formally leave when the irreconcilable differences hit. What's clear from this documentary is that he very much wanted to keep the band together. At some point off camera, before the proceedings, two major Beatles-related events happened. First, their manager, Brian Epstein, died at 32 from an overdose, and two, Lennon seated the band leader role to Paul. During the sessions, Paul makes a number of references to the fact that the band needs a babysitter. They do. And McCartney is far too much of a taskmaster to run a band this talented. Hey, there's wings. At one point, after George Harrison briefly leaves the band and John Lennon doesn't come up to work that day, Paul's fighting back tears for a good minute before Lennon calls in to say he's coming into the studio that day, thus saving the day. For now... But it is clear that John Lennon was the true band leader before the events of Get Back, and he was probably far more lenient than Paul, and it probably worked out better because everybody in the group was so immensely talented and they needed room to operate. By the way, it's striking how coolly confident Lennon is in this documentary. He's in full possession of his powers, and almost everything seems to roll off his back. Uh, I've heard people refer to him as benevolent in this documentary, and that's kind of true. I mean, he gets a little frustrated in a private conversation with Paul, and he seems a little nervous at the start of the rooftop concert, so they probably hadn't performed live in six years. But he's otherwise cool as a cucumber, so I can absolutely see why people gravitated to him. Meanwhile, Ringo probably has the most chill of any human being on the planet, and seems like the best hang of the whole bunch. He's just happy to be there, watching everything go down as he lets McCartney's daughter play on his drum kit or his mashed potatoes for lunch and calmly lays down these unbelievable drum fills. If anybody broke up the Beatles, it was probably George Harrison. Uh, clearly, McCartney and Lennon view him as a lower class of songwriter and musician than they were. 
even if Paul is more overt about it, at one point Lennon says when George leaves, let's just replace him with Eric Clapton. But by 1969, it was more of a first among equals situation with George ripping off songs like Something, Here Comes the Sun, and All Things Must Pass. Honestly, those tracks are as good or better than any that the Lennon and McCartney songwriting team ever wrote. So when George walks out on the band, it's understandable, and he clearly wants to do his own thing. At one point, John and Yoko suggest that maybe they all do solo albums every now and come back together to be the capital B Beatles from time to time. That seems like a good compromise, but George clearly doesn't want that. He wants to break off. And Paul only wants the Beatles to exist as they have. And there's the rupture. So I guess the answer to who broke up the Beatles is ultimately the Beatles. But it's worth watching to see how it all goes down. Yes, everybody had a hard year. Everybody had a wet dream. And this was mine. Now, before we get to our conversation about online marketing with Jason Chan, principal of the law offices of Jason Chan, let's the two of us listen to what Joshua Lennon has composed for us in this edition of the Clio Legal Trends Report Minute. In 2020, 7% of legal professionals let go of their commercial office space in favor of maintaining a virtual practice. And another 12% are unsure if they will keep their commercial office spaces in the future. I'm Joshua Lennon, lawyer in residence at Clio. There's no question that beyond the pandemic, clients will still look for the convenience of remote meetings and online communication. Already, 56% of clients prefer video conferencing over a phone call. For lawyers, this presents a major opportunity to reduce overhead, saving upwards of $10,000 per lawyer in office expenditures. The cost savings here can both help with firm profits and be passed on to clients. To learn more about these opportunities and much more for free, download Clio's Legal Trends Report at clio.com forward slash trends. That's Clio spelled C-L-I-O. So let's get to the cream in the middle of this Boston cream pie. That is this podcast. It's time to interview our guest. I have a great guest today, my friend Jason Chan. He's the principal of the law offices of Jason Chan. Jason, welcome to the show, my friend. How are you doing? Jared, good seeing you. Yeah, this is great. We've been, uh, we've been back in touch for a little bit here. It's been great talking with you. So you were like, you're great. At, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell people you're a great networker, especially online. And that's what we're going to get to. So let me set the stage for people. You're there cruising along. You got your successful criminal law practice. You're doing the in-person networking thing, taking people out for lunch, shaking hands, kissing babies. 2020 rolls around, COVID. Everybody's stuck inside. Mm, right. For somebody like you, how did you adjust to that? Well, I mean, I think that's exactly right. Because in the years past, you could really be in the same room with someone, shake their hand, look them in the eye. And I think that's kind of how we all expected how networking was going to happen for the rest of our lives. Uh, (laughs) Right. (laughs) And when it didn't happen like that, we had to have these other things that we had to get comfortable with, right? The first time I think I heard about this cool new app called Zoom and uh, (laughs) downloaded it on my computer. And and it was a really different way to network with people. It was certainly more efficient, but at the beginning, it was definitely a lot more impersonal. but there was so also you did, other you did, Were you not using video conferencing until the pandemic hit? Well, we were just in court all the time. So there wasn't wow. a ton of time for us yeah. to yeah. kind of talk to people. In fact, most of the time that my law partner and I was speaking with people was when we were in the car. 
So we're logging gotcha. a lot of hours on the phone, but yeah. we weren't doing much video conferencing at all. Right. So all that windshield time all of a sudden turns into video conference time. And, and I like it much more. And, and the other big issue, too, was shared that our clients really had a resistance towards like, well, you know, I don't know about this futuristic technology. <laughs> <laughs> like, how do I do this? But then it, they transitioned and, and they most of the times we have people request on their end that can we do a Zoom instead of me driving to see you. So it was actually a big shift because of that. The people just got comfortable yeah. with that technology. Yeah, yeah. I, this may be an appropriate time to say I've had a Zoom account since 2011, which I'm pretty proud of. Um, <laughs> but in terms of in terms of the networking stuff, right? It seems like your referral sources, the people you talk with in business, they adjusted pretty quickly too, right? How soon did you start doing like the online networking stuff? I mean, they went right away. So I think there was. Uh, still some resistance at the beginning of people mm. thinking, well, you know, this will probably last a week or two, should be back to banquets and halls and seminars with 500 <laughs> people in a month, but it just right. didn't happen. It just didn't happen. So, and the people who kind of went down the road and say, oh, I'll wait until this whole thing is over before I start networking again, now have probably been this frozen state for about a year, right? Or at oh, least I know. Them, so, yeah. So, for you, it sounds like you weren't doing any kind of online networking prior to the pandemic. Is that right or is that wrong? Almost zero. I would say wow. very infrequent. It may have been one person here and there, but really, I mean, it's just mostly phone calls. Very, very little online networking at all. So you said people were resistant to start networking initially. How did you get people to come out of your shell to kind of, to come out of their shells, I should say, to talk to you in a different way? Like, how did you convince them or did you have to, or did they just start figuring it out after a while? I mean, I don't think it was convincing people. I think they started realizing themselves that this is going to be probably what they call the new norm, right? This is probably something that they need to transition to. And I yeah. think a lot of the lawyers that didn't want to get into that kind of decided if they want to change jobs or if they just wanted to early retire. That's kind of the same stuff that I hear about a lot. It's like, well, yeah. you know, with this new world, I don't really want to be involved with that. I'm going to do something completely different, right? So I think that is um, kind of the sad part of this whole process was there were people who kind of decided that they were going to move on from the practice of law. Yeah, creating opportunities for younger attorneys too, in a lot of cases. For sure. Now, you, you're also involved in some online networking groups pretty extensively as well. And one I'll mention is Provisors. You yeah. lead one of their local groups. So for a dude like you, right, you weren't doing any online networking at all. Now, yeah. like a year and a half later, you're leading a group of people in, wait for it, online networking. I think a lot of people would love to do something like that. So how do you make the transition so quickly and get to that leadership position so fast? Yeah, so I made a conscious effort. You know, the thing about online networking is that you need to see what it is and also see what kind of like the things that's not, right? So there's benefits to online networking because you can reach many people at one time in one place that you would never otherwise be able to reach. The problem with online networking for a lot of people is it's not as personal. So you really have yeah. to be able to kind of gate that reach, and then you can follow up later with one-on-one -on -one phone calls, with in-person meeting. I mean, even during the pandemic, I, I went on a, a hike with someone outdoors, right? We were more than six feet away. We we're probably like 10 feet away, and we we're just, <laughs> just kind of hanging out. But that was someone that I really wanted to meet. 
But mm-hmm. normally, I wouldn't have gotten to that point until you kind of sift through a lot of people who maybe once in a lifetime would get, get you a case, once a year may send you a case. But that individual yeah. that I went to meet is someone that probably calls me once a week, not with something that I necessarily would pick up, but uh, you know, there's a chance. So I would say probably once a month is, is a, something that would be appropriate, but they think of me all the time. And building that relationship was something that started on Zoom and later on can move to something more personal. Even in the pandemic world, they're like you know, people sit in two different cars or, or people right. you know, sit right. across the picnic table from each other. But you don't need to have... It's almost impossible to have 300 individual lunches, but you could be in a Zoom room with a couple hundred people. That's not a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting analogy because like that was similar to what you would do anyway. Like even if you were going to an in-person event, there's follow-up criteria. Like you're not, somebody's not going to be like, hey, thanks for the tea. I'm going to send you a million referrals now. You got to keep on that relationship. And it's the same type of thing, just different. So how were you able to like, get up into the ranks of a group like this so quickly and like take over a section of that group? Like, how did that happen? Do you have any advice for people who want to do something like that? Were you just really active? How did you try to get to that point? Yeah, so it's it's many different things. I think sometimes you luck into people who kind of mentor you through certain things. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the, the things is obviously be active, but also kind of be aware. So be aware of kind of what you're trying to do. So the big thing is just kind of, if you can help in other people to kind of grow their practice, that's the best way to try to get people to like you, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> they're yeah. like, oh, wow, these are his clients. They're trying to think about me in this way. And also, we're very singular focused in terms of our practice, right? We practice criminal defense. So where other people will call us regarding any other area type of law, we'll have to kind of farm it out. So naturally, we're good referral sources for people, especially right. lawyers and CPAs. But- you know, people need real estate agents, people need mortgage brokers and bankers. And sometimes they'll call me, I'm like, you don't need a lawyer. What you need is an accountant. But for someone who <laughs> maybe hasn't really had a lot of experience with the law or accountants, they wouldn't know. I have no idea what yeah. I need. I know I have a problem, yeah. right, Jared? That's it. They know they got an issue. They know they need help, but they don't know where to go. So they give me a call and I say, hey, you should talk to X, Y, and Z. And that's why these groups have been good for me because I've expanded my own network because in the eyes of my clients, they're like, wow, Jason really is the person that knows a lot of people. Yeah, so that's a good point you bring up too. Let's talk about that a little bit because I know a lot of lawyers who like, they like to talk with other lawyers. I don't know what they do. Maybe they go somewhere and speak Latin to each other back and forth. But like, I've always felt like you got to expand your network as an attorney because lawyers all have like the nuclear option, which is like, if they want to take on a client, they can do it. But if somebody a real estate agent who needs to find an attorney who's going to do a closing, they got to get an attorney to do that largely. So how important is it for people to find non-lawyers in affiliated professions to network with, including online? Oh my goodness. I mean, you really have to figure out your own practice in terms of what's going to be the most useful for you. So Mm -hmm. for me, even the, when I say lawyers refer to me cases, there's particular lawyers that refer me much more often than other attorneys, right? right? And when you think about non-lawyers, you know, financial planners are great people for me to meet. Just anyone in a trusted position. Yes. Um, the question is, who is that person going to call when they're in a situation like, oh my God, the FBI just kicked down my door. Who are they going to call? They're generally not going to talk to their healthcare guy. They're probably not going to talk to <laughs> HR. They're probably right. not going to be talking to their marketer and say, oh yeah, I'm about being indicted by the feds. So... <laughs> 
we're all busy, Jared. And I think the big thing is that people need to be thoughtful about their process to say, okay, this is what I'm actually providing my clients. This is what's going to happen when my client has a problem. And these are the people they're going to want to talk to. Then the people in turn you want to be talking to, right? So accountants look for at me. It. Yeah, yeah, accounts for me are great because it's like people talk about accounts about all types of problems. The IRS is you know, on my behind for X, Y, and Z, right? Oh, hold on. You might want to talk to Jason, right? So <laughs> I, I think that's the big thing is to, because I'm sure you get this a lot, Jared, that people say, well, I can't network because I don't have enough time. Yes, and all the you're, time. You're never going to get more time. So in order to get use your time more <laughs> efficiently, you need to be very thoughtful about who you're trying to network with right? What professions? And then find out where they hang out and go to those networking groups. I love it, man. That's great. Now, now a related topic, which I think you and I are on the same page about is like, a lot of people like to talk to their peers in the sense of like, they're all hanging out in the same age group all the time. But for me, man, I want people above my age group who have more connections, more money, right? I want to be networking with boomers. <laughs> so how do you yes. get out of that mindset of like, I just want to talk to people who are like me? Because I think a lot of people have that issue too when it comes to networking. You really hit something on the nail on the head. The guy that I told you was calling me almost like once a month is someone's, I think his son is my age. Yeah, yeah, so, there you go. Oh, perfect, perfect yeah, example. Yeah. So, and <laughs> we didn't even I, plan this. <laughs> right. We, I swear to God, we didn't. Um, but he, his, I think his son's my age, and he's a great lawyer, but he's exactly the type of person that I want because his clients have been with him for no less than 40 years, right, mm. of actual practicing. So when his clients call up, they'll say, well, you know, so-and-so told me to call you. You're my guy. I don't care, right? Like, I have more trust in them than my own kid, right? So right, right, right. <laughs> it's amazing. So, and, and that's the big thing that people have to get out of these mindsets that I'm only going to hang out with whoever. And, and they really need to expand out on that. And mentor groups are great, right? You get a mentor, these other events where there's, there's attract lawyers from all types of industries, but also all types of age groups, but also right. different types of industries too, overall. I mean, it may be, you know, chamber of commerce type of situation where it's not just attorneys. I got one more question for you and we'll end here. So let's say, for example, God willing, we're out of this pandemic at some point, in-person networking is back like it was before. How do you split your time then? Yeah. So that's a really, that's a really good question. I think ultimately what it's gonna happen. It's it's probably going to be either 50-50 or 75-25. And honestly, I don't even know which direction yet. I don't know if it's gonna end up. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna ask you which way. I don't I don't know. I assume so what we see, right? That everyone's just clamoring to be back together, which I get it. But then I'm guessing when it's like snowing out, like people are gonna be like, well, parking downtown really sucks. Right, so, right, right. We ultimately may see it being somewhat weather dependent. So, and I've noticed that over the summertime mm. that more people are like, yeah, let's go on a picnic. Let's go, you know, grab oh, lunch on a, a yeah. park bench. But then now as the winter is starting to roll in, there's more and more people like, well, Zoom is convenient. <laughs> so <laughs> do you want to just do a quick Zoom or a phone call? So I think it's got to be somewhat dependent on the people that you want to network with. Yeah. And also what time of year it is in <laughs> New England, especially. Right, right. So for those of you in California, just keep networking as you've always done. Jason, this was a lot of fun. Can you hang around for another segment? We'll love to. 
Awesome. All right. We'll take one final sponsor break so you can hear more about what our sponsors can do for your law practice. Then stay tuned for the rump roast. It's even more supple than the roast beast. Partner with rankings.io, the marketing agency for law firms that want results, not excuses. With flat rates for Google ads, a track record ranking attorneys for the most competitive terms on Google, and a team always easy to reach by phone, even during off hours, Rankings.io is the agency of choice for firms that want the rankings, traffic, and cases other law firm marketing agencies just can't deliver. Visit Rankings.io for a free consultation and start seeing your firm grow. Simplify. With Cosmolex, the only fully integrated practice management solution. Everything you need, accessible anywhere. Trust and general accounting is built in, so you don't need QuickBooks. Cosmolex's Money Finder reminds you to bill for work you put into client matters so you don't leak money. That's messy. Lower cost, better business, and less frustration. Yes, please. It's all built in with Cosmolex. Free trial and... Take 20% off your first year at Cosmolex.com. Contract automation isn't a trend. It's a strategic imperative. Though big players in the e-sign world will make you believe implementing it will cost you big bucks and more than a few headaches, it doesn't have to be that way. DocuB is an easy-to-onboard, full suite of products that includes e-signature, brilliant workflow capabilities, and AI contract automation at nearly half the price of those out-of-touch behemoths. The one thing DocuB doesn't automate? Their customer service. Visit get.docub.com slash contracts to set up a call with a real live person. DocuB will be with you every step of the way. Welcome to the rear end of the Legal Toolkit. As promised, it's the rump roast again. It's a grab bag of short form topics, all of my choosing. Why do I get to pick? Because I'm the host. Jason, I think you do a great job with your networking events, as I mentioned before. So I want to get a sense of what you would and would not be willing to try in terms of those sort of activities. So I wanted to run some team building sessions by you just to see whether they would get the Jason Chan stamp of approval. I'm going to mention some of these activities, and I want you to tell me how likely you would be to actually try these things in your own networking groups on a scale of one to five, with one being the least likely and five being the most likely. You ready? I'm ready. <laughs> and, we, and we've <laughs> talked about some of this stuff before. So I want to start with number one. And I should mention, like, the reason I bring this up is because I think you plan really cool get-togethers for your online networking groups. I know you haven't tried this one. Axe throwing. <laughs> This has become very popular across the country. People go to bars. Uh, well, I don't think they're bars, actually. I think that's probably a bad idea. But they get their flannels on. They throw axes and try to hit a target. What are your feelings on axe throwing as a team building or networking activity? I mean, that's a five, but it has a picture of your rump on there. That's like a 10. <laughs> <laughs> so between a five and a 10. That's fair. I've been known to sit on a copier here and there. All right, let's move on. What do you think about awards ceremonies? Are you a fan of The Office at all? Oh, the my God. Show? They're fantastic. The Dundies. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so for those who don't know, on The Office television show, they hand out these awards at this annual event every year, and they go horribly wrong. 
Phyllis is awarded the busiest beaver award. Um, <laughs> Stanley got the fine work award. I was just reading this. It's Pam from the office, she won the whitest sneakers award. Would you do something like that with a networking group and rate it for me on a scale of one to five? Is it as I'm, good as axe throwing? I think it's like four and a half. I think I definitely would do it, but you know, I think some of the racier ones we might have to kick out. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. All right, I gave you the easiest ones first. Now, I want to tell you about some team-building activities that went wrong, and I want you to tell me if you could fix these. So I'm going to read you a little bit here. Number one is a juice cleanse. Oh, God. Team juice cleanses emerged as a popular office fad around a decade ago. At one point, juice companies reported that they made as much as 30% of their business from office cleanses. Now, women make up two-thirds of all juicing enthusiasts, which I didn't know was a term, but corporate cleanses are predominantly male, and they're undertaken by hedge funds, interesting enough, law firms, and investment banks. So one person who participated in a juice cleanse said that in 2012, his entire team participated in a three-day 18 juice cleanse, that sounds aggressive, which was called an excavation. And it was meant to engage the team in a shared experience and boost productivity. The only thing it accomplished really was the excavation part. So right after they finished the juice cleanse, everyone is in the bathroom. And the guy who participated in this said that the bathroom was straight up like the line to ride the teacups in Disneyland. The whole office was just exploding with all kinds of noises. It set us back a week in terms of productivity. (laughs) So what do you think, man? Do you think you could actually pull off a juice cleanse? Would you try it or would that be like a one? On your scale, I mean, I think that's like a zero. I don't think that's going to happen unless you, <laughs> unless you take out the cleanse part. Maybe we just drink some juice together. So that's like a three. That's you know, I, that's I, not a bad idea. I'm a big blueberry juice fan. You get blueberry juice happening. I'll be there. Um, I have not had that before, but I'm definitely going to try it now. Blueberry juice is excellent. I recommend it. They are not a sponsor of this podcast, but Wyman's has excellent blueberry juice, folks. You should know that. We got two more for you. The next one is called horse whispering. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. One participant reports, my team did horse whispering, where you work with horses to learn about great communication. I don't really see how this is possible, but one of the horses got overexcited, galloped toward the center of the barn where we were being briefed and nearly trampled one of my coworkers. It was a bonding experience to a certain extent, but only because we all thought we were going to die. Would you try horse whispering? And how would you rate that on a scale of one to five? I would definitely try doing that. That sounds amazing. And I would make sure the coworker I didn't like was at the back of the horse. Well played. All right. You're doing great here. I only got one more for you. I saved the best one for last. Here we go. Here's a little story. Managers at a Swedish telephone company were trying to organize a memorable team building exercise for their international sales conference. And so they decided to turn to, wait for it, Hijacking. The manager hired two men with masks and weapons to stage a hijacking of the employees, taking them to another venue. (laughs) The exercise was reportedly designed to test the employees cool under stress. However, they couldn't quite pull it off because as soon as they kidnapped all their employees, someone called the police. Hijacking. What do you say? Yay or nay? Stage hijacking, I should say. Stage. Yeah, well, I mean, it is staged, so that's probably going to still be a hard pass, though, because it seems like a lot of liability <laughs> issues there. 
And this is why we talk to lawyers. Jason, thank you. I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for coming thank on. You. This was great. Yes, that was tons of fun. Literally, it was at least 4,000 pounds of fun. Come on back one of these days. Are you willing to? Absolutely. Be on as much as you want me. If you want to find out more about Jason Chan and the law offices of Jason Chan, visit attorneychan.com. That's A-T-T-O-R-N-E-Y-C-H-A-N.com. Attorneychan.com. Now, for those of you listening in Liverpool, we've got a Spotify playlist this week that covers some of my favorite late period Beatles songs. Unfortunately, it wouldn't have time for me to reveal all of the connections, and there are a lot between Clifford the Big Red Dog and the Matrix Cinematic Universe. But I will have some things to say about the Smurf sequel at some point that will really blow your mind. Those little blue bastards. That'll do it for another episode of the Legal Toolkit Podcast, where lovely Rita is our favorite Beatles song. Or at least it's mine. Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.